Welcome to the Arrow Buddhist Tradition podcast series. For more information about the Arrow Buddhist Tradition, please go to the website at arrowbuddhism.org. If you wish to make a donation to support this podcast project, please go to the section of the website labeled How to Help. I'm Nima Ozer, and I'm here with Nakhchor Rinpoche, and I'm going to be asking Nakhchor Rinpoche some of the common questions that people have when they come to Buddhism and want to know what Vajrayana is all about. So thank you, Rinpoche. Mm-hmm. Rinpoche, what, would you use the word enlightenment to describe the goal of Vajrayana Buddhism? I used to uh, years ago. I've stopped using it because it's not the um, translation of any Sanskrit or Tibetan word. I don't know why it was ever used. Um, I now use non-duality to describe that because that's accurate. And so, okay, non-duality. So, could we say that non-duality is the goal of Vajrayana? Yes. Okay. If someone is on the path of Vajrayana, and with the term enlightenment, it often sounds like a goal that is unattainable. And how, how does this term non-duality relate to something that a practitioner can actually experience or attain? How do well, we know if we're experiencing it? Well, um, that's really a question that arises in the context of practice and can only really be understood in terms of the nature of the practice itself in relation to Um, your relationship with your teacher. Mm. There's no simple answer to that. There's probably an answer that would take several hours to go through the four naljors, Mm. but there's nothing I could say that would make sense in a simple Mm. answer. Um, In terms of non-duality or enlightenment being unobtainable or seeming unobtainable, um, I've never really approached this thing in terms of goal orientation, Mm. Um, wanting to obtain something. One, well, I practice because I'm aware that uh, there is a direction. I wouldn't say particularly it's a goal. I mean, uh, Trungpa Rinpoche wrote a book called Journey Without Goal, which I think was a great title. It's a journey of um, discovery, but that discovery is a, a continuous and continual thing that you know, depends on the nature of your practice in any moment. In terms of the non-dual state, we're all beginninglessly non-dual. We have that state. So you know, to speak of attaining it, or to speak of it being a goal is in one sense like uh, saying one day I hope to have legs 
if you happen to have them, well, that's where we all are anyway. We are beginninglessly non-dual. We don't see that, so we attempt to see that, and methods exist for um, dropping the idea that we aren't already in that state. And it flickers through whether we like it or not, whether we don't like it or not. Uh, it sparkles through the fabric of our conditioning. And most practice uh, is actually concerned with um, hitching a ride in one way or another on that sparkling through. Mm. So it's something we can all experience uh, momentarily that is not such an outlandish proposition. But it's remaining there. So in terms of Dzogchen, the practice is to remain. Mm -hmm. Okay. And when you find you've not remained, then you try to remain again. Mm -hmm. You to find yourself in the non-dual state by means of practice and to remain. Mm -hmm. I've really noticed that in your teaching that it's, it does seem to be devoid of goal-oriented language. And it's really amazing. I think as Westerners, we're often just so steeped in that paradigm. I know for me personally, it's almost difficult to not think like that to think uh, not in terms of goals or what the mm. goal is in the path. Is it appropriate for someone to have some kind of expectation or idea of where the path is leading them in terms of some kind of result or fruit of the path that, that would be tangible to them? Or is that just based on confusion? if we have some kind of expectation? I think it's based on the fact that Buddhism is not the indigenous religion of this culture. Mm. Um, I think if you're born into a culture that is a Buddhist culture, then you tend to have a different approach. Um, if you've lived amongst Tibetans, well, you know, Tibetan Buddhism is my... Um, religion or mm -hmm. Nima. So uh, I'm used to living with those people and being aware of how they are. They are not goal-oriented. Mm. They may well be practice-oriented. They want to engage in practices, but they're not um, hung up on success with it. They don't talk wow. about it. Um, <laughs> really beautiful. They um, they may occasionally experience frustration with practice, but they discuss that with their teachers. Um, but you know, in terms of um, having a goal, I think that comes out of Buddhism being a hobby. Hmm. You know, if you have a hobby, um, hobby is a terrible word, um, say it's an interest, a pursuit. 
horse riding, playing a musical instrument. You obviously want to get better. Uh, if you plagued yourself with, um, you know, the idea that, you know, when am I going to get famous? I've been learning to play the guitar now for five years and I'm not famous yet. That would be a real problem. And so, you know, the goal orientation uh, in terms of Vajrayana is a problem. It just gets in the way. Because it's really not a goal that you're after. It's um, a question of opening, a question of letting go of reference points and um, occasionally getting glimpses of what that state is like to be without reference points. So the goal is happening all the time anyway. So to put it out there in the future as being a specific thing is, is misleading. That's really amazing what you just said. Goal orientation gets in the way. It's more of a question of opening and letting go of reference points. Without, uh, without the goal there, then where does motivation in the path come come from how does for someone who's new in practice I know for young people we're really bombarded with so much really spiritual advertising there's so many workshops and seminars and religions and spiritual paths and books and all of these philosophies and they're all putting themselves out there and presenting themselves in sort of the vein of of western advertising don't you want to be happy don't you want to be, you know, finally be fulfilled? All of these things, and so if if we're not thinking in terms of that in the in, as Buddhists, what would our thought be, especially as new practitioners? What what are the what is our motivation to go forward into the path and to practice? If it's not with an expectation of something in the future. Well, I think the most obvious thing, uh, or maybe not the most obvious thing, um, is to look at how you get interested in anything. Mm. And what happens when you get interested? You take an interest in, in, in music, say, mm. one type of music in in you know, Bach or blues or your horse riding or, or whatever it is and you have a fascination that develops and that fascination fuels itself you, you don't have to scurry around thinking ah oh, well I'm kind of interested in horse riding but I you know I, I, I need a push to you know to actually go along and take another lesson you know and uh, People don't think like that. When you're enthusiastic, you follow the enthusiasm. So I would have to ask, who are these people who are saying they're interested but lack motivation? Um, you know, 
if you're really hot on lap dancing, then you go to the place <laughs> where the lap dancers are and they sit on you uh, and you can't wait till you go back again. Or what, I've never been to one, so I don't know. I've heard of it. It's, so it's, but I mean, you know, <laughs> you, what you, I, I don't know who these people are who are not interested enough to follow it. But why are they doing it anyway? Um, you know, that's an underlying question. Uh, there are motivations within Buddhism. Um, I suppose the correct way to answer this question is to say that one practices for the benefit of all sentient beings uh, so that all beings may be happy and have the causes of happiness, etc. That would be a statutory answer. But that motivation is part of the thing you're supposed to be enthusiastic about in the first place. So you can't really use that motivation to motivate you to be involved. You're involved and that motivation is part of an array of methodology that you employ because you want to employ that methodology because you're enthusiastic about it and you want to follow that. So, um, yes. Is our, is a fluctuating motivation something that is natural or common in practice? Are there times in the natural life of a practitioner where motivation fluctuates or it's an ambiguous motivation at times and how do we relate yeah, to that? I, I, I think that applies to anything, um, any skill or area of interest that you develop. Um, you'll find there's frustration with it. Uh, you'll find that um, there are certain things you want to do more than others. You'll find um, that your level of fascination rises and falls according to all kinds of mm -hmm. factors. Um, your health, your relationships, your um, situation with friends and family. Mm. So that shouldn't be surprising. Um, I think a lot of these questions come up simply because Buddhism is, is not the indigenous religion and so we're not living in a society where it's normal. Um, I'd really recommend people to live for a period of time in India or Nepal. That's of course not easy. You know, it's, um, it was easy for me because um, Back in the 70s, when I went to India um, as a British citizen, um, you didn't need a visa. You could just go there and stay as long as you liked. You know, uh, of course, that's now changed, and I need a visa like everybody else. But and also, I am I needed a visa for Nepal, but all I had to do was. When my visa ran out, I crossed the border into India and come in again. 
you get another visa. <laughs> so so that was no problem. Everything in those days was very easy. Also, to live in India and Nepal was very easy because it was extremely cheap. It was uh, as if you were, you know, had today's money 200 years ago. Mm. You know, and you could work for three months and then live for the rest of the year in India, you know, and live quite well. That's no longer true. So it's much harder for people. But without the experience of living as a Buddhist, as a relatively normal thing, I mean, of course, you're always a foreigner there and you're always, it's always a special situation because you know you, you're not going to spend the rest of your life there. But still, I think it's very helpful you know, to see how people live it as, as a cultural phenomenon. Not that that cultural phenomenon is preferable in every respect. That has its own problems in terms of um, um, cultural aspects that adhere to Dharma that aren't really Dharma. But still, you know, in terms of the average everyday practitioner there, um, there's quite a different view of how to proceed. And they practice because that's what they are. They're born to it and they don't have to have a reason. You know, it would be like being a Christian in this country 200 years ago. You wouldn't have to have a reason to be a Christian. <laughs> you just be born and that would be it and that's what you do you wouldn't think oh you know maybe I'll explore Taoism <laughs> it wouldn't occur to you to do that and it wouldn't occur to you that you know your religion wasn't reality And um, so I think I mean there are obviously the advantages also to not having it been the religious culture of your birth. We could look at those perhaps, but I mean, I think it's worth bearing all these things in mind. Yeah. But what it comes down to in the end is that um, if you're going to spend your life in a meaningful way, you have to work at whatever if you don't work, you won't get any pleasure from anything. So whatever your interest is, you have to work at it. And the harder you work at it, the more pleasure you get from it. If you keep changing, then you get less out of what you do. If you stick with one thing, you go further into it. These are just principles of existence. Hmm. And life is not that long. It seems long when you're young and then it speeds up in some horrible way. But <laughs> it seems quite obvious now. I think, well, I'm really glad that I didn't explore anything else. I'm really glad that um, I didn't spend years shopping around and trying this, that and the other. It's, um, it's been of benefit. Well, that was what I wanted to ask you about is the role of discipline and exertion in Vajrayana. One thing that 
it's really popular here in California are a lot of uh, kind of new age teachings and pop psychology that urges us to do whatever we feel and trust ourself and be true to ourself and you know, beyond the whole idea of, of difference of what self is in Buddhism, just that sort of meaning of that, of, of doing whatever arises or really um, kind of following one's urges. How How is that connected to Vajrayana? Because in some cases we hear the stories of the Mahasiddhas where the thief gets to steal the whole world and the Mahasiddha overeater gets to eat the whole universe. And how is that related to this notion of following one's impulses as some kind of spiritual Well, of course, thing. all the Mahasiddhas had teachers. Mm-hmm. And so what they were encouraged to do was under the guidance of their teacher and the um, thief uh, had to steal the whole universe in his mind. Mm. It wasn't simply stealing the whole universe. Yeah. Um, so there was a specific character to that teaching. As to doing what you feel, I mean, um, I'm not really one of those people who like to say um, you shouldn't do this or you shouldn't do that. If you want to live like that, then live like that and see what happens. Do what you feel all the time. See if you actually get any satisfaction out of that. I mean, I doubt if you do. Being true to yourself is a weird um, semantic construction. What does that mean? What is this self? As you say, we won't go into whether there is one or not, but I mean, even if you had one, I mean, how do you identify whether you're true to it or not? (laughs) Who's to be the judge of that? You, well, if if whatever I feel I want to do is in accordance with this self, then I'm doing that anyway. Mm. How can you not be true to yourself if you're always doing what you want to do? So you're already doing it. I mean, how can you be false to yourself? If if you say, well, you're being false to yourself because you're doing what other people think is a good idea. But what if you want to do what other people think is a good idea? So if you're doing everything you want to do, what if that's the thing you want to do? Or maybe you have to do things that nobody thinks you want to do. Well, how do you discover what those things are anyway? Hmm. That whole philosophy is completely shot. If you pick it apart and say, what does this mean? You find it doesn't mean much. You know, it's a a, a platitude. Hmm. Not even a duck-billed platitude. Oftentimes I'll hear practitioners say this, that they are wanting to 
be true to what they feel when they're encountering doing a practice in a disciplined way over a period of time, that that comes up for especially very new practitioners that are just getting acquainted with Buddhism or Vajrayana, there's this notion that somehow any form of discipline or work is an imposition on that notion. And can you say something about what is the role of of discipline as far as continuing to do practices? When we are motivated, I know I can speak in terms of myself, I have really high motivation, and yet there are times where I'm picking myself up and carrying myself over to sit and do practice because I could do a thousand other things that seem so important, but it's my discipline to do it, so I do it anyway. And so is that something that someone can just either they have it or they don't? Or do we cultivate that discipline or... In a sense, it's a kind of violation of one's laziness to do that or something. Where does that come from, the will to do that? Can someone develop it, or is it only naturally arising based on the extent of one's motivation? No, I think you can develop it, but um, I think that one of the problems with this whole point of view um, is that most people I meet have no capacity for logical thinking. (laughs) They are unable to tease something apart. They are unable to be pragmatic. You know, there are certain things in, in life that are more or less objective realities. If you overeat and don't exercise, you'll get fat. You know, that's you can you can state that as a as a fact. I don't go in for there being too many facts, but there are some obvious ones. Um, the fact that discipline is useful in the pursuit of enjoyment is also a fact. Mm. I think Thomas Jefferson said, I'm a great believer in luck, and I find the harder I work, the more I have of it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, I think it's part of our education. I think it's lacking. You know, I think that um, it's not put across that pleasure and enjoyment depend on work. If you don't work at anything, then you never get anything out of it. Um, Maybe that's something that happens at school because people have to work at things that are are meaningless. You know, there's a lot of... Oh, interesting. There's a lot of, you know, Mm -hmm. examination passing where you have to learn a set of things in order to regurgitate them, and this is called education. 
And most people learn the things to pass the exam and then forget them all. So it, 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 it seems irrelevant. And maybe you know, you know, the irrelevance of that education is, uh, is problematic. In a, in a primitive society, primitive, let's call it pre-industrial or whatever, I mean, you know, if you're the children of a farmer, you learn how to farm, you know, you know and the, <laughs> uh, the consequences of good farming are th that you eat, the consequences of bad farming are that you mm -hmm. starve, you know, that's fairly obvious. Mm -hmm. You know, there are certain things that have to be done on time. The crops have to be got in at a certain time. And whether you're feeling bad or you're not feeling like it that day is, is irrelevant. You know, um, life f forces you to do certain things for your survival. You know, even if it's something like... Um, there was a movie I saw once where there's this fellow who's staying with a, uh, a family who had winemakers and they have a vineyard and there's some kind of frost and they all have to be up half the night with um, um, some sort of heating um, you know, um, and they're fanning the grapes with, with heat because you know, oh. to keep the frost off them because if they don't do it they're going to lose the entire crop and um, that just comes up to me at that moment I can't remember what the heat source was but they had these big fans they were using you know they were just walking up and down um, keeping off the frost and there's no choice about that and that's a really good thing you know you have to do it Otherwise, you lose your crop and, and you're bankrupt. You know, the whole thing folds. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, the more of that that there is in life, the better. Because it um, presents you with, you know, the facts of reality. So I would say that not wanting to be disciplined is not wanting to face reality and not wanting to uh, be alive, really. If you want to be alive, then get a discipline together, you know? Because any way in which you want to change or grow or develop a skill is going to involve things you'd rather not do. Like uh, you know, seated trot. I used to hate that. Wham, 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 wham. It's really uncomfortable, especially when you're over 50. You know, it's, um, and you get twinges in your um, legs, you know, around your hip joints and stuff doing that. But it, it's a valuable exercise, and I understood that I had to do it. I didn't enjoy it. But if you're only going to do what you enjoy, you're not going to get anywhere. I do plenty of stuff learning to ride a horse that I really didn't enjoy that much. But it was irrelevant that I didn't enjoy it. I now enjoy being able to ride a horse. You know, that's, that's the end result. I could ride a horse even better. That's another end result. But I'm kind of happy where I am. I can 
get on the horse, I can you know, canter off into the wilderness and if the horse jumps a log, I can handle that. He doesn't throw me. And um, But there was a lot of hard work went into that, particularly because I'm a klutz. I have very bad balance and it took me a, a great deal of time. Is it ever appropriate for us to have some kind of expectation, especially I think it's relevant for newer people who are beginning to do practices, is it appropriate to have some expectation of feeling better or being happier or maybe having an easier time with their mind and emotions, some kind of result orientation or expectation that they that is brought to the path it's not useful it's not useful at all at all dharma has got nothing to do with being happy uh, being happy is a side effect It's one that I enjoy. I, I, I'm not saying yeah. you shouldn't be happy or there's nothing great about being happy, but it's not the purpose of Dharma to be happy, you know, to make yourself happy. You know, uh, it, if you practice Dharma, you will become a happier person. But that can't be your motivation. You know, your motivation needs to be to understand the nature of reality to let go of referentiality, to um, be motivated you know, by the plight of other beings, that you could be of benefit to other beings, um, but not particularly you know, for your own happiness. That just happens as a side effect. I remember that from one of our previous interviews you said something like that the only uh, proper motivation for Buddhist practice is to understand the nature of reality. Mm. So that was really powerful, succinctly put. <laughs> you see, the, the, um, the goal with regarding to horse riding is not to be happy. Mm. The goal there is to be able to ride a horse. Now, of course, when I'm cantering around in Montana, I'm saying, yeehaw, this is fun. I'm enjoying myself. <laughs> so that's a side effect, you know, that uh, I'm not falling off anymore. You know, I must have fallen way over 20 times. <laughs> Broke my, uh, cracked my coccyx twice, cracked oh. ribs twice. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> so... <laughs> I don't know what all the fuss is about for people sitting for half an hour every once in a while. It doesn't <laughs> seem such a, a tough ordeal to me. <laughs> uh, Rinpoche, in emailing the lamas from afar, someone wrote in and asked about how to deal with panic and overwhelm and 
the actual caption of this section is panic is not an option. And you replied, well, last time I was on a wild horse, I rammed my heels down and wrapped both hands around the pommel. And uh, Contradiction says, when life seems too much, it's simply an indication that we've flinched into the fetal position. Could you talk about this notion of um, of panic or shutting down? Or I noticed that uh, sometimes there seems to be more like a tantrum. People seem to have a tantrum when stress comes up. And how do you make the bridge towards another kind of response? I know for me, I just get this kind of uh, just handle it, like Clint Eastwood kind of mind about things. And I wonder, no, okay, what I'd is... I'd recommend that, yes. Really? Yes, <laughs> yes. Okay. And so what is the bridge? What is the... How to go from the panicking and tantrum throwing to another option, whether it's Clint Eastwood style or whatever style. What? How can we handle it besides that? I think panic is uh, probably predicated on the belief that uh, some form of magic parent will appear and pull you out of it. Uh, whether that magic parent be the Lama, be God, or be whomever. Um, I think when you realize that it all stops here with me, that nobody's going to help me. Um, if they do, it's a bonus. <laughs> but otherwise, um, you've really only got yourself, and you have to be self-reliant. And um, um, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. I remember the car crash I was in in was it November last year, when some lady went out with bald tires on her car and span in front of us on the road, and I was just watching. Uh, the car, I, I was the passenger and I was just watching, I thought, right, we're going to crash now. <laughs> and I just waited for it to happen, I just braced my feet against the car, pushed myself back in the seat and then wham. Um, now, um, panic has no purpose in a situation like that because what's going to happen is going to happen. Mm. Um, we're all going to die. We're all going to die. <laughs> and uh, it's going to happen at some time or another. You're either going to live to be old or you're going to get a life-threatening disease or someone's going to whack you in an alley or something's going to happen at some point. Um, there's not a lot you can do about most things of apart from do whatever lies within your capacity. And I think panic comes out of a fundamental rejection of the fact that you might die. Every time I get sick, or you know, sick enough, I, I usually remind myself at least once that this could be it then, this could be death then. How, how's that feel? 
Sometimes to feel all right. Because you can't spend your life living in fear of death. I mean, that's a useless pursuit. It's a complete waste of time. Fearing the inevitable. There seems to be a lot of different deaths we could fear. uh, Not just the death at the end of our life, but things falling apart and chaos and losing things, losing relationship, losing job, losing money, just all of those other forms of the death of what we thought should happen. Mm-hmm. And how can we begin to make a bridge? What is the method in Vajrayana to go beyond that fear and to become comfortable you said whatever's going to happen is going to happen and so how do we integrate ourselves with that reality or find some peace with that what is the path towards that Um, well finding peace with it is not rejecting it I remember speaking with Jigme one of our students one of our ordained students and um, it was after 9-11 and she was telling me how afraid she felt, you know, that the world was, um, you know, suddenly a threatening place. And uh, what did I have to say about that? And I had to say, well, you've just become aware of how threatening <laughs> the world is. It has always been like that. It's just closer. <laughs> You had a misapprehension of the world before. It doesn't make me any more anxious than I was yesterday. You know, with the, if you read history, it's just one unending list of wars. You look at European history and it's crazy. Every country was the ally and enemy of every other country at some point. You know, Spain's on our side against France, and now we're, we're on the side of France against the Germans, and now we're this and now we're that. And everybody, it's, and it's just war going on all the time. And it gets closer, it moves further away, it's on your doorstep. It's, but it's there all the time. And it's just acknowledging the world as it is and, um, and facing that and facing the fact that you've got no certainty about anything. I think you only panic if you, are, if you get the idea that there's a safe place and a dangerous place. But, you know, there is no safe place. Oh, interesting. If you think there's a safe place, if you think there's a way out, if you think there's a way to protect yourself, then you can panic because you've, you might have made a mistake. <laughs> but there is no mistake you can make, really. I mean, you can be an idiot, sure, but um, you can put yourself in danger. You can be reckless. You can do whatever. But um, If... Uh, in terms of emptiness, in this whole topic of 
acknowledging the world as it is or reality as it is, if it's part of our nature, then why do we have, why do we reject it or reject experience it or have trepidation about experiencing it? It seems like in some cases we're allergic to it, <laughs> just any sign of it, and we have all these strategies to avoid experiencing it. So is, important to, is it important to understand why that we do that? And if so, why? Well, it's not important to understand why we do that. It's important to understand why I do that. It's different for every person? No. Oh, okay. It's the same, but, oh. but you can't make a generic out of it mm. and understand it. You have to see it in yourself. Mm. You have to see what you're doing. You have to see your own pattern, realize it's a pattern, and realize what you get from it. And whenever one witnesses one's own um, habitual behavior, it always looks ridiculous. If you actually confront it and look at it and see it, it always looks ridiculous. Which is why we don't like to see it. And we can only maintain it by you know, pretending... We don't understand what we get out of this self-destructive behavior. Yeah, I know mine definitely looks ridiculous to me when I discover it. And I've been wondering, is there some kind of tolerance that a practitioner has to develop of being able to see that ridiculousness and um, see one's own just closed-mindedness or ignorance or see one's whole pattern. Well, it all comes back to silence, sitting. Mm. Everything comes back to that all the time. You simply have to silence, sit, and then you become transparent to yourself. You see it. You see your motivation. If you don't sit, then it never happens. But you can't approach it in terms of philosophy, you can't really understand the nature of samsara and then make the intellectual decision not to manifest samsara. Because that's purely intellectual. Mm -hmm. you, you have to see it. You have to see yourself creating it. You have to catch yourself in the act of creating samsara and recognize the ridiculousness of it and that's how you get rid of it it gets rid of itself it can't exist under that open-ended scrutiny so maybe the only way to deal with this is through silent sitting then one is able to see what they're getting out of these strategies to avoid emptiness or they see they understand more why they're doing it and so yeah well since of course you go into emptiness when you silence sit and you and you see what your resistance is to that and then that will naturally translate itself 
into your experience of the world and how you um, resist emptiness in the world because you've experienced it within yourself in terms of silent sitting. So that naturally then applies itself to everything. In terms of uh, being able to experience how ridiculous our own pattern is, the, uh, I know that I hear a lot of times from practitioners a kind of maybe anxiety about failing or not being a good practitioner or repeating the same harmful behaviors towards themselves or others again and and... I wonder how is it that Buddhism deals with this kind of idea of self-esteem without the idea of self? And could you talk about that? Because there seems to be some kind of uh, special self-hatred without the word self, hatred of one's experiences that is really this common. is always a killer to me. <laughs> yeah. it makes me you know, um, uh, when you're looking at, at yourself, right, and you're saying, oh, I'm such a bad person, how does the bad person that I am feel about the one who's judging him as a bad mm-hmm. person or as a good person? there's immediately this dichotomy of me and the judger of me. Now, who are these two people? So, so self-worth, self-esteem, you don't need to have it. I don't need to think about myself as being this or that or the other. I can think about... Uh, whether I just fudged that bar chord, hmm. you know, and I can say, right, I'm going to try that again. Uh, but as some overall gestalt of me that I can say, well, this is valuable or not, uh, I mean, how would I do that? I would know how to do that. I think that people have problems with self-worth because they've learnt the idea of self-worth. Oh, interesting. My son, Robert, had never heard the word bored, boredom or boring before he went to school with the result that he was never bored. He then went to school and became bored because he learnt there was a word. (laughs) So, We have all these needs because society presents us with these categories and then we relate to them. You know, self-hatred, I mean, who would have ever thought of such an idea unless the word was there? I mean, you may look at your acts and say, yeah, that wasn't a good act. I'd rather have done something else there. But then it's looking at that act as a particular phenomenon. You can say, yeah, 
that wasn't good. I should have had my heels down. You know. I wouldn't have fallen if I had my heels down. You know. And so you can look back at that phenomenon and you can say, well, I'll, I'm going to try a different approach next time that happens. So that could be a way out of that habit of, of self-hatred is instead of looking at it as, as a kind of indication of one's identity or self, looking at the phenomenon in question yeah, and that action in question. That's not also so alien to this culture because um, I've often heard people completely outside the realm of Buddhism who said you should hate the act, not the perpetrator of the act. That's, a, that, mm -hmm. that's quite a common idea. Because the perpetrator of the act can change and cease to be the perpetrator of that kind of act. Yeah. Okay. You brought up samsara. Before you answer the following question, maybe you could also just define samsara for those who are listening who don't know what it means. And then uh, would you comment on this this concept that samsara and nirvana are one and what does that mean in emailing the lamas from afar you also talked about heaven and hell are our own creation and are discovered to have the same taste and so this was in the section called The Gates of Hell. <laughs> and someone here is asking about the heaven and hell that's going on inside them all the time and wanting to get free of that. And so there you said, well, heaven and hell are of our own creation and are discovered to have the same taste. So what is this idea of samsara nirvana as one or heaven and hell as the same taste? What does that mean and what is samsara in the first place? Could we define that term? Uh, well, samsara is a lot easier to define than anything uh, else you mentioned. Okay. Um, nirvana is a word I don't use. Um, there's samsara and nirvana that exist as a, as a polarity, uh, where nirvana has to do with extinction, extinction, extinction of desire. Um, I tend to speak of uh, samsara or korwa um, as being the antithesis of liberation, which is not quite the same thing as nirvana. Um, to speak of uh, samsara and nirvana being undivided is a little bit complex for this discussion. Um, I'd rather, you know, simply uh, define samsara as being a distortion of the non-dual state, mm -hmm. which is a slightly different approach. Um, samsara, or in Tibetan, korwa, I, I don't know what the etymology of samsara is, but uh, korwa means going around in circles. So korwa is a, is a vicious circle. It's a self-defeating circle. 
or cycle. Now, the interesting thing about korwa or samsara is that it doesn't function according to itself. It fails. Whatever it tries to get, the failure of the getting is built into the mode of getting. So, samsara is not a state of sin or naughtiness. It's just a non-functioning software. It's like Microsoft, you know. <laughs> it doesn't work. It doesn't do what it says it's, it, it's, it's going to do, you know. I've been using a computer for years, so I see the analogies, you know. I, I, you, know you, you click this, and it does something else. It doesn't function. Well, it's, um, actually, samsara is easier to understand than Microsoft. <laughs> you know, you could, you could get over samsara. <laughs> I don't think you could ever get over Microsoft. I don't think that's possible. That's <laughs> just hell from beginning to end with no remission. <laughs> But um, uh, samsara, once you see how trying to get what you want undermines what you want, you stop doing it because it's ludicrous. Um, To actually talk about how that happens is then about half a day's discussion and I talk about it in terms of the elements. how this pattern works as characterized by the five elements or earth, water, fire, air, space, uh, what, you know, what these paradigms are. Um, I'll maybe just you know, go through one, um, say, anger. Uh, anger is connected with the water elements. And its uh, root is fear, fear of emptiness. And the coping strategy, because each one has a coping strategy, the coping strategy is uh, anger or aggression, violence. Uh So when I feel this fear, I need to kill, I need to destroy. Uh, The killing can be... um, relatively non-violent. It can be um, a sarcastic remark, uh, Mm. a refusal to uh, speak, a refusal to discuss, a refusal to deal with something. Um, Whatever it is, it's it's killing, it's destroying, it's cutting. Uh, Now, the problem with doing that is that as soon as I kill you, I feel safe. Oh, there was Ursa. She was a big problem. Now I've killed her. I feel better. <laughs> you know. um, now, of course, what happens there is that I have to seek safety through killing again. I can't simply kill once because that safety becomes nebulous. 
So I have to look round for someone else to kill. So I see Sengi Powell. And he's definitely a threat, so I need to kill him. But with everything I kill, it only makes me look round for something else to kill. So I survey the perceptual horizon for threat. So instead of making my situation safer, I make it increasingly threatening because I have to seek threat in order to kill the threat in order to feel safe. And that simply uh, escalates. And it escalates like, you know, the nuclear deterrent. And it becomes ludicrous, like overkill. Mm. Now, you know, I, the people t- <laughs> who are apparently sane will talk about overkill. I mean, once you've killed me, I mean, what are you going to do? Kill me again? <laughs> How many times can I be killed? Over and over. You know, apart from different lives, but I mean, it's, it's um, so this thing always reaches ludicrous proportions because it's ludicrous. You know, you see the um, ludicrosity of it. Mm-hmm. I just made that up. But, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, when you push it, and it always does that. So uh, anger as a coping strategy for fear undermines itself and it it creates what it's trying to avoid. It simply creates more fear. And you can look at each one of the elements. I mean, I've contracted that explanation. I usually talk about that for a lot longer. But um, one can look at each one of the elements and see the self-defeating cycle in each one. Then the final one is the space element, which is depression, which is a state of denial that arises out of the fact that all the coping strategies failed. We can't believe they failed, and therefore we choose to play blind, deaf, and dumb to everything, uh, which is what we do in the school playground when the game's not going our way. We say, I'm not playing anymore, and that's depression where you contract into a smaller space because you can't dominate the bigger space. But however small you make space or try to make space, it's always space. So it's always too big. So you have no choice but to contract and contract and contract. And of course, you contract because you feel powerless and you want to feel more powerful in a smaller space. The smaller the space gets, the more powerless you feel. So that, mm. that undermines itself that way. But, you know, it, it's all very well to talk about it. You actually have to experience that in silence, sitting. And I have to see myself manufacturing that cycle. So that's samsara. So samsara is when we are... Attempting to accomplish, let's say, in the terms of anger, we're trying to accomplish safety, mm-hmm. but instead we're creating more and more threat. Mm-hmm. And and with depression, that was really interesting to hear you use that word powerlessness. In, we're in depression, we're trying to be more powerful, 
but we're just creating more and more powerlessness. By shrinking into a smaller and smaller space. This is, I, I just love hearing you talk about this. Every time I've heard you describe the elements, I feel like I rediscover my own ridiculousness in a new flavor. <laughs> that it's really great to hear, yeah, that's what it's I'm a, doing with anger. That's my, mm. it's a safety urge. Could you do this for the fire element as well? Oh, the and then we element. have the three poisons, and we've, <laughs> we've done a nice little section the on fire the three. Favorite, really. It's. Uh, I remember talking about it at the Naropa Institute, and I'd gone through the um, the uh, you know dualistic distortion of each of the uh, elements, and um, I'd gone through the fire element, and this. Oh, you never said what the um, uh, realized quality of the fire element was, and I said, hell, who needs one? <laughs> <laughs> Being a fire element neurotic from way back, you see. Um, um, the fire element is is uh, concerns uh, unification with an object of desire. So that's what I want to do. I feel isolated. So, so the root is isolation. And with that sense of isolation in terms of emptiness, uh, the emptiness is the lack of, or, or the apparent lack of contact with all phenomena. And so I have to isolate aspects of external phenomena and seek to unify with them by uh, possessing them. And so I see something, I move toward it, it becomes more and more real the closer I get to it, and finally I take hold of it, I possess it, and as soon as I possess it, it's gone, because it's me, and I'm isolated again. It, was le- it wasn't me when I couldn't get hold of it, when it was a distance away. But as soon as I've got it, it's within my domain. It's part of my isolation. So all I can do at that point is look around for something else. You know, to possess. And the interesting thing here is that no matter how um, attractive, desirable, marvelous, fantastic this thing is, um, we're really not operating in terms of real or authentic appreciation. Because what we wanted was the unification. We didn't actually want the object, the person or the situation. What we wanted was the idea of it, the, the moment of um, you know, coital explosion with it, whether it be a book, a, a, a horse, a, a gun, a knife, a guitar, a sandwich, or whatever it happens to be. You know, uh, it's it's always 
wonderful glowing radiant thing until we get it and then because we have no authentic appreciation it's just another thing I've got this is why it crashes in that way and all we can do is attempt to swallow the entire universe and we can't really do that so it's infinitely frustrating you know this is why um, you know people who think they'll be happy when they're rich they win the lottery or whatever often get really miserable because they realize that, that they can buy everything and it's meaningless they thought they'd be happy uh, now having a great deal of money can make you happy if you're already happy <laughs> but it can't make you happy if you're not you know? You know, if you're already happy you're happy because you appreciate but if you come at it from a poverty mentality it's not going to do anything it's, it just doesn't function in that way uh, the only thing that makes you happy and makes you feel unified with everything is realizing that you are not isolated from anything you know um, Churdroll over there is putting on a cardigan and she's probably mm -hmm. enjoying having put on the cardigan and um, I think that's really nice <laughs> I'm not putting it on but I think oh right you know it's, um, she's enjoying that I'm not separate from that someone else gets something they really want I could be pleased about that one's not separate from the enjoyment of others one's not separate from phenomena but if you think you are and if you think you need to possess phenomena in order to enjoy phenomena then um, it's a, it's a, a self-destructive cycle so is it that we're, in order to experience unification, we, we think possession is the way to experience that, mm -hmm. but then possession just makes us, reminds us continuously that we're not unified. Is that it? Or that we're, that we're in that state of yeah, well, separateness? Once you possess it, it's yours. It's not external to you, so you can't unify anymore. You've already unified. That's gone. So you've got to unify with something else. And then I probably have to create elaborate theories for why. That wasn't the perfect one, though. That wasn't the perfect man, woman. That wasn't the perfect situation. I'm going I'm to seek out the really perfect one. And then you realize increasingly that you can't find that anywhere. And that whatever you get is always the same. And so the world becomes increasingly less appreciable. You said it because we, I think you said, because we have no authentic appreciation of it, then the enjoyment of it rapidly fades away. Is that, well, is there, that what you said? There and was no authentic enjoyment in the first place. Mm -hmm. What fades away is the sense of unification mm -hmm. having got it mm -hmm. 
and then you're not le if you have no authentic appreciation then you've got nothing whereas if you have authentic appreciation then you like a thing forever you say God look at that thing up there look at that I mean this is this thing this is fabulous that thing here I've, I've had it for 12 years or more that's still fabulous uh, it's not less fabulous than the new one it's different but you know, I like them both I like this in some ways better than that for different reasons but they're both equally wonderful and can remain wonderful forever as long as I'm not manipulating them to say something about me you know I'm a Gansamacha because I've got these two you know it doesn't make any sense you know so we're not we are instead of genuine okay if I'm genuinely appreciating something then I'm not trying to use that object to avoid experiencing my separateness from phenomenon. Or if, let's see, so the genuine appreciation has in it a sense of the unification that's already taking place. Is that it? So how does that manifest? You're in automatically unified as soon as you appreciate it it is the unification already so you don't actually have to own it yourself hmm. it's it's really quite interesting that this is one of the first um, teachings that Chagam Trumpa put out, I think, in uh, Myth of Freedom, or maybe even in, in um, Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism. I think he, he refers to the five elements in both. And it's really fundamental um, in terms of uh, Vajrayana psychology, that these elements, if you understand the elements, there's actually not a lot more you need to understand you know, in terms of their uh, uh, distorted mode and their liberated mode. Well, thank you, Ramche. This has been really interesting and just always so exciting to talk with you. I think now we'll take a break.